Hello and welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I am Maisha Kai, Managing Editor of The Glow Up, and today we're talking with breakout author Ayana Gray. Ayana Gray's debut novel, Beasts of Prey, has been getting a lot of buzz. In fact, even back way ahead of its release, the book was preempted by Penguin, which, if you're not in the publishing industry, means that they were so amped about the book that they made a substantial offer in order to prevent other publishers from even bidding on it. So, yeah, this book has been highly anticipated, and for good reason. It is lush, magical, and so much fun. It's hard to believe that at just 28, Ayana has written something like this as her first book. You know, I loved speaking with Ayana, and as I told her in our discussion, I am not typically inclined towards fantasy, but this book, as well as she herself, really blew me away. We talked about why millennials in particular are drawn to the YA genre, how she even came into fiction writing in the first place after abandoning her law school ambitions, and how she managed to find the discipline to finish this first book, which personally was some discipline I could use myself, so I enjoyed that lesson. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. So with that, please enjoy Ayana Gray. Ayana, welcome to It's Lit. How are you? Hi, um, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? Well, I am. I'm good. I'm good. I'm. I'm. I have to say, I'm overwhelmed a bit. I I've been devouring your debut, Beasts of Prey, um, and we're going to get into that. It it is a lot of book. Well worth it. <laughs> but first, uh, you know, we have a little icebreaker we like to do with our first time guests here on It's Lit, because this is a podcast about Black writers, Black thinkers, Black stories. We like to ask all of our guests if there was a book or books that you felt was particularly inspiring to you, that was game changing, that just mind blowing in terms of your own trajectory as a storyteller and as a writer. What would that book or books be for you? Oh, see, I'm, I'm a book person. So like I, my life is almost defined by the books I was reading at that time. And I can think of, that's how I remember my life, by what I was reading. Um, the very first chapter book I ever read was Charlotte's Web and, um, just a classic and my grandmother got it for me. And, um, I remember the joy I felt when I finished it. Cause I was like, I read a whole book. And um, I love animals. Like, I love animals. And so I really gravitated toward books. Like, there was a series called The Red Wall Books, The Chronicles of Narnia. Yes. Stuff that was magical and let my imagination run wild when I was very young. And, you know, I'll just be blunt. I grew up in the South, in mostly Georgia, but then later Arkansas. And so... I didn't get to read a lot of books by by black authors that were just, you know, that were mandated in school. Mm-hmm. I read a book, actually, I read a book around fifth grade called Fresh Girl by um, and I hope I'm saying her name correctly, Jaira or Jara Plus Side, but she's a Haitian author. And she wrote kind of a semi-autobiographical story about her and her family's journey to America. And it was just, you know what, it wasn't a fantasy story. And it it was actually, you know, a pretty in some ways a pretty heavy read because of the things this young girl goes through. But I was, I was a black girl reading about a black girl and kind of the awkwardness of being a young 11, 12 year old, whatever it is. And just feeling like, Oh, that I'm, I'm not alone. 
And then when I got older, like, you know, and got to pick what I got to read in school, in high school, we had independent reading projects. I got to read Toni Morrison for the first time and read The Bluest Eye and Sula and Beloved. And that was a game changer because just that, it's hard to describe if you've read Toni Morrison, you know, she just, the way she pulls you apart and like, looks like you feel like she's right there in your chest. Like just, you know, it's reading her as an experience. Um, yeah, agreed. <laughs> well, you know, and it's interesting, you know, Toni Morrison comes up a lot when we ask that question here and people say, oh, you know, I know it's going to sound like a cliche. And I've always said, I was like, but these, you know, these are part of our canon. Like this is our canon. Right. And what I love what you just did actually is that you named three books of Toni Morrison's that I think actually kind of embody this, really that particular arc that you named there, the bluest eye, Sula and Beloved is also kind of a coming-of-age arc as well, mm-hmm. which to me is perfect because it brings us to your book. <laughs> you know, so you've written this epic, Beasts of Prey. This is your debut book. And I that in and of itself to me is so impressive because this is a sprawling book. You have created an entire universe here. And I have to tell you, I have to make a confession here that I'm not even sure I'm so proud of, which is, you know, we've had this podcast now for about a year. And I think that you might be our first fantasy author. <laughs> you know That's an honor. Thank you. Yeah, I think you might be our first fantasy author. I mean, obviously, you are not the only, you know, amazing Black author working in that space, but you are the first one we've hosted that I I believe. And I, I sometimes look at myself because I choose a lot of the books that we feature here. And I'm like, is it me? Is it that I, I you know, I get very hesitant sometimes like I'll watch Game of Thrones but it's like I haven't read the yeah <laughs> yeah the books so you know I looked at this book when it, when it came to me in the mail I was like wow this is a lot of pa- okay this is like 500 pages <laughs> and um I have got to tell you I devoured this book in I think three sittings and was happy to do so it was a ridiculously easy read for such a long read so you know I'm saying this because I want our listeners to know that this is a story that will draw you in and you will actually want to know what happens. And it, I love that you talked about books that kind of defined your childhood because, you know, you're kind of offering the same thing that you say that you got in terms of recognition of yourself in a work. You are offering that here in Beast of Prey because you've done this very pan-African fantasy. And what I think was so enchanting to me as a woman now in her 40s is that it brought me back to my childhood in terms of just that that sense of like magic and and wonder. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, and I think that's the magic of the YA genre now that so many people long underestimated, but I think YA authors are finally getting their flowers. So let's talk about that first, like why you gravitated to the YA market, like why this is a market that you have decided to vest yourself in. Well, I think a lot of people tend to write what they like to read. And I was, you know, I say lucky, I'll just say lucky. I was lucky that I'm a nineties kid and I was a teenager right when YA really boomed. So the Harry Potter series was just going nuts. You know, it was a huge empire at this point. Twilight came along, the Hunger Games came along, Divergent, all of these really big franchise level books that were literally targeted and written for me, for my age group. So I had all of this, you know, really these great stories that I just, I loved. And I found friends through reading these books in this, in this age group. And it's interesting what's happened with YA, because I think young adult used to be like ages, maybe 12 to 16 ish. And it's really expanded. So you have young adult stories, but you've got people who are 18, 19, even sometimes 20. It's really grown. 
because people in my generation are still reading YA. I'm a mid-millennial. I'm not Gen Z, um, but then Gen Z is still reading it. So you almost have two generations in the same age group. Super interesting what will happen with YA. But I think, and it took me a while to figure out, okay, why are you still reading YA? Why haven't you graduated up to adult? One is I think the the pacing and the speed in YA is quick. It's quicker than adult usually tends to be in fantasy specifically. But more deeply than that, young adult stories are about people trying to find their place in the world and trying to figure out where they fit in in the world. And I think even though I'm 28 now, and so there are days when I'm like, I'm supposed to have it all figured out. I do not have it all figured out. And I'm still trying to find my place in the world. And so reading about somebody who, who's also trying to find their place in the world is a little bit comforting. And I think that that continues to apply. You know, I'll still be trying to figure out where I fit when I'm 50, when I'm 60. You know, that never goes away. It speaks to your inner child. So, yeah, I can promise you it does not. <laughs> You're going to figure it out again and again and again. I, I'm yeah. still figuring it out, too. I think that's pretty much what the whole life thing is about. And and I have to also shout out the fact that already you've gotten the endorsement of the Oprah magazine. I know you've got film stuff going and like there's stuff happening here. And so it's kind of like that, that debut author's dream, but this is such a visual book. You know, you really are incredibly descriptive. And, you know, as I noted earlier, this is a pan-African tale. And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you do something really great and I love that you do this. In, in terms of giving us some sense of epilogue that explains, you know, everything from like the etymology and these, these you know, these animals and, and your sources and, and even your tributes here, you know, whether it's Nkrumah or, you know, any number of, of figures who come up in this book. But can we talk a little bit about your inspiration in terms of uh, this tale? Because, you know, you, you write that you were surrounded by moving boxes and you got inspired to, to, start framing out this story. Can we talk about process? Because I think that's always something that people are really curious about, like how that started for you. Were you already actively writing books were you, or stories? or Like, how did that start? Yeah, I, I've i been writing my whole life, um, pretty much for as long as I can remember. I've loved books, I've loved stories, I've loved the, all of it. Um, I never finished anything I started. I would get inspired and then like write frantically for, you know, a few chapters and I'd hit my like, well, there'd be a plot hole or something or it'd get boring and I'd be like, okay, I'm over it. I think that's pretty common. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I went to college with the idea that I would be a lawyer. I really wanted to do something in, you know, in social justice, to be honest. And then being really candid midway through college, I became really disillusioned with the U.S. justice system. And I was like, you know, I questioned, do, do I want to be part of this? So I graduated and didn't go to law school, which I'm glad that I figured that out before I went, but it left me sort of in this weird place of, okay, now I don't have plans and all my friends have plans and they're going to grad school and med school and, and getting their PhDs. And I'm, I'm just at home trying to apply for jobs and figure out what to do next. And I think that's not uncommon. Like you have this existential crisis post-grad, unless you go into a specific thing, if you, you, know, you don't know what you're going to do. So I turned to what I knew. In, in the in the situation where I didn't know, like, I felt like I was very, a lot of things were not in control. I went to the thing I could control, which is my writing, you know, writing, that's my world. And I started writing and I could see this story in my head that I, what I wanted it to be, but on the page, it was not there. Um, that's also pretty common. And it took me, it took me five years, really closer to six years before, from that initial, like, I'm going to start writing something to the book you have 
And I think it's really important to be very transparent about that because in entertainment industries, you get a lot of the Cinderella stories and you hear the flashy stuff, but you don't hear about, you know, how long it takes and work and the rejection and the bad days. So it, it took a long time. <laughs> Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, I love that you say that. And, you know, and I, as somebody who's been entrenched in the entertainment industry for decades now, you know, I always say that, Nobody has any idea how long it takes to make an overnight success. Like, it takes years and sometimes decades to make an overnight success. But you are entering a genre in which, yes, there are others who've done this work. I mean, you know, you are in a tradition now of, in your own way, obviously, but in a tradition that includes generally Octavia Butler and N.K. Jemison and Nettie Okorafor and more. But did you... When you talk about the rejection piece, did you find any specific challenges of people being able to accept this type of story or accept fantasy from a writer who looks like you? Um, I think I got tremendously lucky because there have been trailblazers who have made who who did hear those things and pushed against it. And so I, I heard less of it. I remember there was one person who they passed because they didn't like the the main male character in the story. And they said, oh, his story, he doesn't really have a story. He's not very, you know, he wasn't strong enough. And in those moments, I'm really grateful when people pass because I'm like, you just, and it's- You didn't get it, right? You didn't get it because the whole point is I don't want to write a strong black boy. I want to write a black boy who is quite, you know, not not weak, but challenging the idea of being what being strong is. That's yeah. the point. Because well, we, he was incredibly sensitive, this lead character of yours. Well, one of your two leads, I should say. Yeah. And he's very nuanced. And yeah, I, I do want to get back to that, but I want to let you finish your thought as oh, well. <laughs> that, was, that was one of them. Um, that was one of them. There were people, there were agents, specifically literary agents who were like, oh, you know, the voice the voice didn't work for me, whatever. What it taught me though, um, because no one ever said the same thing twice. And that, that I hope, you know, if you have writers who get to listen to this, you know, rejection, um, it's so subjective. I've had an idea of a friend who her, her young adult fantasy, she's also a black author is it's coming out the month after me. And she was straight up told there's not a market for your story for your, your black, it's a story that's fantasy with um, a black female lead. And, and it's funny now because it's one of the most, it's another really anticipated book coming out in the fall that people are just going nuts over. 
So you do still hear it sometimes, but I think less because people are realizing that that's absolutely false. If it's a good story, people want to read it and they're not like, oh, it's a Black lead. So I I can't relate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you also are coming out at a time that um, we now do have, in, in addition to other incredible authors doing this work and who have done this work. I mean, you know, again, we talked about Octavia Butler and like, you know, female leads, Black female leads in this in this fantastical realms, these these stories that ask you to kind of reconsider what reality is and reconsider your own reality. But you're also coming at a moment where we've had some great visual representations as of late, you know, whether you're looking at, you know, Watchmen or Lovecraft Country, Black Panther to a certain extent, you know, just having these strong Black female characters in these otherworldly realms who are kind of rewriting what a hero looks like. So I think that that's that is significant. And I love I love to see all the, the writers who are kind of catching this incredible zeitgeist moment. But back to your book, you know, I, I love what you said about your male lead who has this very, very rich story, actually. You know, he 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 starts out he starts out small and subtle in a weird sort of way, you know. And what I think is really interesting here, and I think that this is um Something unique to YA, and maybe you don't feel this obligation, but I definitely feel that YA authors, there's also the imparting of lessons. Like you're very conscious of your audience as being in these very fundamental stages of growth and needing to get certain things across. And you do some things here with kind of unpacking trauma, for instance, addiction comes in, manipulation, grooming. I mean, there's so many kind of layered things here. Can we discuss like how you kind of teased out those themes, how deliberate they were, how organic they were, and and why you felt it was important to incorporate them into this particular tale? Because these are very obviously real life things that kids can see themselves in. Yeah, young adults, even even adults can see themselves in. Yeah. So, in some ways, I, I wish it's going to sound weird. I wish I was a more deliberate writer. Like you know, I wish that I could say. In 2015, I was like, I'm going to write a story about a a Black boy who's dealing with trauma and PTSD. What typically happens is I write the story and then I reflect and realize that I was writing things like without, you know, very subconsciously putting things I wanted to say onto the page. And then I'm like, oh, wow, you know, it's, it's cathartic. But, you know, I have, I have a little brother. He's two years younger than me. And I vividly remember him as a little, little boy in his, in his Thomas the Tank Engine overalls. He is and was a very sweet, gentle soul. And he's, and I want to say he's totally fine, by the way. <laughs> he's fine. <laughs> he's um, really still a really goofy big kid now, even though he's bigger than me. But I remember watching the evolution of my brother and watching how he was just this very gentle, soft kind of boy that loved Thomas the Tank Engine. But the way the world looked at him and made the, the assumptions they made about him and the expect, you know, At school specifically, I watched my parents have to fight with even, you know, with schools because my brother was accused of doing things that they knew he hadn't done. And it's not, it it was not a situation where it's just parents refusing to see their kid. My parents, if my parents were called to the school because we acted up, it was, we were probably, we were in trouble. But these were situations where, you know, report cards, your son is very aggressive. Your son is very this. He's very boisterous. He's very this. And the language and the way the world saw my my very gentle little brother and how I, I didn't understand it. And it, it made me really sad for him. 
And I thought about how many times that happens to black boys. They get older and and then it's, oh, we need to diagnose them. We need to get them on medication. Medication is not always bad, but the impulse to say something's wrong with you because you're not doing this or because we think, you know, it's all, it's all deeply racist. And I don't know, I, I wrote a story of, of, of a boy who, who was struggling with some of those things, who was put into this world where he was expected to be a certain way. But in his head, he's like, but I'm not that way. And I, I'm, I don't fit in. And he's struggling with that. Because again, we're all trying to find how we fit in and how we fit in within our worlds. So it wasn't, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was just, you know, this was in my head. I wanted to talk about it because I hadn't seen anybody talking about it, especially in fantasy, specifically in this genre that I like to read. Um, and that's how Icon came about. Um, and there's pieces of me too. We both love books. We both love plans. <laughs> um, don't do well when our plans don't go according, you know, don't go accordingly, but writing is a, and you, you know, it. writing is a very cathartic experience. You put yourself into the pages without even realizing it. Talk about things that you don't know how to talk about with friends, but you still feel the need to talk about. So. Well, I definitely think, you know, I mean, you, you say you, you wish you were a more deliberate writer, but I, I would argue that the book is probably better for it because it does feel very organic and it does feel very human. Um, and then there's the non-human elements that you've woven in here. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of spirituality here. Um, and I guess part of my question earlier about, you know, if I were to further that question about were there people who didn't get this kind of story? I, I wondered, were there people who thought that a mass audience wouldn't be able to relate to this kind of, you know, tale that's deeply rooted in pan-Africanism? Like, I mean, I know what my answer is, which is like, well, I didn't, you know, grow up in... England or Oxford or whatever, but I, you know, I can get Harry Potter. I get it. Yes. <laughs> you know, but, um, you don't shy away here. You lean all the way into this and you really take us there. And I love that even in some respects, and you, you write about this in your, in your epilogue that you pulled back in some respects, you know, like in the spiritual realm, because you were like, okay, I don't want to, I'm not trying to hijack anybody's actual religion. So you, you kind of constructed that, but there's all these like anthropomorphic elements. There's, you know, there's very, very cool things going on here. So what is it like to develop an entire, not just an entire world and realm and city and civilization, but an entire spirituality? I was just talking with a friend about this and how it's, it's prickly. You have to, I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like I have to be treated with a lot of care precisely because of what you just said. Faith, actually, there's a movie, sorry to be tangential, but there is a movie that I really like that I went to go see with my dad when I was a teenager called Angels and Demons. And Oh, this is like the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, I yeah. saw that movie. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's it takes place a lot in the Vatican, um, and religion is a huge part of that movie. But there's a quote that has always stayed with me, and it's um, "Religion is flawed, but only because man is flawed." I think most religions, the tenets of most religions, are very similar: be a decent person, treat people with love and compassion. And I don't want to, for lack of a better word, I don't want to disparage or, or you know disparage that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I do think, and this is just me being totally transparent, um, I I do think religion is something that we should talk about and question. We should ask questions. We should ask why and why not. And personally, as someone who is baptized at nine years old, I don't pray to a God who doesn't want me to ask questions. That's how I feel. You know, that's part of growth and that's, that's part of uh, a healthy relationship, I think. 
asking why, asking why not? Why do we do things a certain way? How should we do things? For me, as a woman who says I'm a Christian, how can I be a better Christian? Why should I do this? Why should I not do that? So taking that mindset and putting that into a fantastical world, I wanted to create a religion where, you know, as a reader, hopefully you are asking questions. Why is this a situation where only one person can be the spokesperson for the gods? How does that affect society when you only have one person that can do that? You know, Kofi and Ekon, who are the main characters of the story, they both actually worship the same six gods, but because of their different stations in life, Kofi being part of an ethnicity that is considered second class, she's not allowed to go to the temple and actually speak to the Kuhani and get her prayers and wishes delivered to the gods. So her people have had to develop a totally separate way to, to pray. Whereas Ekon, who's grown up with this level of privilege as a man and as a part of this other ethnicity, he gets to go to the temple and have his prayer and he has money. So you give a gift, you have to like literally pay a bit of money for your prayers to be heard. And I think, you you know, you should ask, why does that make me uncomfortable? Why is that so? What would I prefer? Like what should happen here? Um, so really, I, I don't want to tell anybody, here's what I want you to think about this. I just want people to ask questions and think about it. That's always the goal. Yeah. You know, and I, I think one of the things that, that occurred to me while you were talking, because I think you and I have very uh, similar spiritual philosophies, and I relate to a lot of what you just said there, Um was this idea, you know, you said rejection is so subjective. And I thought to myself, well, you know, so is religion. <laughs> in many ways, it's so subjective, which is why we have so many. In, and I think, you know, one of the, the magical things about this book, aside from the mag- the actual magic <laughs> that you are talking about, is the way you've woven, like, all these things together, all these elements, these social themes and these spiritual themes, these racial themes, or, you know, I think, it's very artful. And I, I have to say, for a debut, I'm incredibly impressed with what you've done here. Because I'm like, this is, you know, excuse my language, it's, this is ambitious as hell. <laughs> this is so ambitious. I'm like, wow, <laughs> you know. But, I, you know, I I, I want to go back to process just a little bit because there is so much multi-layered stuff in here. And, you know, I know that that inspiration sometimes comes from a very organic place. Like, for instance, I know that, you know, the language that you refer to here, you know, is very based on Swahili. You and I both have Swahili names that also translate to Arabic names. So I, I love yeah. that you put that in there because I was like, oh yeah, me too. But what was the research process like here over this five or six year period that you're putting together this story? Because I can only imagine there was a tremendous amount of research that had to happen. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, I'm lucky in that. So one of my two degrees is in African and African-American studies. And so when we talk about Pan-Africanism and some of the big figures of part of the Pan-African movement in the 1960s, I had a lot of that knowledge just from from school, from learning about it, thankfully in college. I didn't have a lot of knowledge on folklore across the African continent. And that was challenging because a lot of folklore across Africa was orally passed down. So you know that every time it's like a game of telephone, every time something is passed down, it changes a little bit. And so you might have the same story from two different regions and they're similar, but they each have a different twist on it. I mean, we have that in the Bible. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, Beowulf, like what are the yeah, old- all of it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, for a little while, I was a little, I, I got, I got upset. I, um, I was actually a bit sad. I'm like, you know, so much care has been put into preserving certain histories. You know, 
people have degrees, people have their whole institutions dedicated to preserving certain world, certain societies' history. Why is my why is the land where my ancestors came from? Why is that not preserved? And it made me like I cried because I'm sitting here trying, like scraping the bottom of the barrel, trying to find good, reliable resources, and I'm I'm drawing very little. And eventually. While I'm still upset about that, I chose to kind of change my perspective about it and say, you know, first of all, there are resources out there. There are just not as many as I would prefer. But also, in a way, I'm glad that some of this folklore and these mythologies have the freedom to not be, um, like, they are oral, and so there is room for interpretation. You know, it is okay that in Nigeria, the story goes one way, and in Ghana, the story goes another way, and in Benin, it's told a different way. That's, That's the beauty of that history is it's literally traveled to different countries and different regions and taken on its own vibe based on the people who were there. And there's beauty in that. And so instead of being upset, you know, trying to appreciate the beauty of it and just trying to find as many books as I could about the different folklore. Well, you know, I also think what's cool is that what you ended up with here is also this kind of, you know, we push back a lot, and as we should, about the ways in which people try to characterize Africa. Like, too often people refer to Africa like it's a country as opposed to, like, you know, this huge <laughs> continent yeah. with all these different civilizations and experiences and people and interpretations of everything. But it seems, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but from what you're saying and from what you've written here, that you took that opportunity to kind of, I don't want to say give us a crash course, but kind of draw from all these different elements of a continent that many of us will never visit, let alone get, you know, most of us won't get to one country in Africa, let alone get to most of them. And so it seems that you took this opportunity here to kind of draw from all these disparate places to find these commonalities, to find the ways that these these stories meshed and to bring some of these magical elements from some of these places that a lot of us will never see. And and I I personally was grateful for that. I thought that was very cool. Now, one thing we should discuss here is that, you know, like all great fantasy writers, you know, whether we're talking about C.S. Lewis or uh, J.K. Rowling, who, you know, she may not be great, but the books were great. <laughs> so we're going to we're going to try to work with that. Um, but you have left this open-ended. This is obviously the beginning of something. So, you know, we've got, what, 480, 500 pages here that are still like, and then what happens next, you know? And that's, I mean, to, to me, I, I got to tell you, the prospect of writing one book um, and having edited a few, I, you know, it's daunting enough. But this, you know, to write this book and know that this is just the beginning of a story can we talk about that as as both a prospect as as also just like how that process continues like cuz this seems like it's such a tremendous effort you yeah. know how do you move on from here is the story already in your head like do you you know yeah it's um it's weird i'll say that like i wrote it, this took 5 years writing one book took 5 years and then suddenly i'm literally contracted to write two more in the next 2 years exactly and <laughs> Actually, book two is due June 1st of this year. The outline for book three is due October 1st of this year. And the nice thing about publishing is like, yes, that's in my contract, but there's wiggle room. I try to keep to those dates, but there is wiggle room. Um, So I turned in a a rough draft of book two to my editor in June, and I got notes back from her recently. So what I'll now do is is revise. And I'm, I'm a big, I do huge overhauls when I revise. And that's just how I work. 
and I'll probably kick something back to her in December and she'll look at it and we'll find, you know, continue to, the, the revisions tend to get more and more specific and less big, but uh, the trade-off is like, okay, I have less time. There's a time crunch. There's more pressure because people assumedly would like book two to be as good as book one if they liked book one. And that's, that's hard. The trade-off though is that, hey, there are people who are saying we liked your story and, and people who are eagerly awaiting the next book. Whereas before with book one, I was like, I don't know if anyone's ever going to read this. So that, you know, there's there's trade-offs there. Um, it is nice to write in a world that I have already established so I don't have to recreate the wheel, but I am taking Kofi and Ekon out of Lakosa and out of the greater jungle where they spent book one into a totally new part of the same world. So it's still a little bit of, of figuring out it's both fun and scary. <laughs> yeah. Literal and literary new territory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I have to ask a sidebar question only because you are, I think you called yourself a mid millennial. You are still in your twenties and mm-hmm. you spent five or six years on this, like right out of college, basically. Right. Yep. And I think on a very practical level, I think people who, you know, like me, who work, work full-time jobs and we're always trying to find times to write for ourselves, how do you find the time? How do you survive? Are you working a full-time job while you're putting all this together? Like, how are you making this work? Yeah. I mean, obviously now it's a little different because you have the contract, you have the upfront money, like that's different. But how does this take shape when you're putting it together? That was something that I really struggled with was the discipline. And I, I didn't, it's something I wish somebody had told me is you can be as creative as you want, but you have to have a, a level of discipline. And this is controversial because some writers say that this is absolutely wrong and that's okay. I, I can only tell you my truth. I told you I would start stuff and not finish it. For me, there's a thing in November called National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo. And it's not specific to YA, it's literally everything. And they challenge you to basically write a novel in a month. And I put quotes around that because it's if you do the daily count that they give you, you end up with about 30,000 words and that's not really big enough to be a novel in most cases. But the whole point is that you write and you meet a goal. And I did that for the first, I did it the first time and I didn't finish. Second time, didn't finish. But the third time I had discovered the online writing community on Twitter and I had other friends who were doing it with me who were encouraging me and saying, keep going, keep going. And I I hit it for the very first time. I, I won National Novel Writing Month. And then because I'd gotten into the habit in the month of November, when December rolled around, I just kept going because I got so used to, okay, I've got to get my words in for the day. So having friends, having a goal, having friends that were pushing me along and championing and saying, no, you've got to keep writing. I did work full-time eight to five uh, for a university. So my day, like my weekdays, I was, I was at work. But what I did is you find little moments. I took the bus. So sometimes I'd be on my phone, even rereading what I wrote and getting ideas for, okay, when I get home, I want to do this. Um, when I get got home, I would make dinner and, you know, sacrifice a bit of TV watching to give myself an hour or two of writing on the weekends when I wasn't doing anything instead of maybe like going out, you know, I would, I would write. So it was a little bit of sacrifice too. And I don't think you should sacrifice all of your time with loved ones, but there's another YA author named Seba Tahir who is like one of my heroes. And I remember she said in in an interview, protect your writing time fiercely. You know, you can't ask anybody else to take you seriously if you're not going to take yourself seriously. Dress for the job you want. So if you want, if if this is your dream, you want to be an author, then treat it like that. This is my, that was my second job that I was not getting paid for. And that's, I mean, I'm making, I don't know if I sound like a 
I don't know if I sound harsh, hopefully not. No, I think, I think that's realistic. And I think actually for our listeners, many of whom are either aspiring writers or writers themselves. I mean, I know I'm sitting here and I'm like, yes, this is good advice, you know? <laughs> so this is a teachable moment. I, I've, I've learned a lot from this conversation and I think people are going to learn a lot from Beasts of Prey. And I guess I'll just ask you a final question on that, which is, what do you hope people take away from this book, this amazing thing that you've put into the world now? Oh, you know, I, I want to be, I want to be careful, I, you know, in telling people, here's what I, I don't want to be preachy, you know, I don't want to tell people like, this is what I, you have to get from it. I, I, you know, the relationship that the reader has with the book, each one is, is, is unique. And I think that's beautiful. Um, I can tell you what I wrote it. Like if I was 17 reading it, like I wrote it for that girl and I wrote it because at 17, I was somebody who had dealt with, um, you know, some pretty painful things and felt like my life was, you know, out of control and applying for colleges and dealing with family stuff. And my way of coping with that uh, was A, running from it, um, just not dealing with it, and B, burying myself in other things like schoolwork, like friends, whatever, and not dealing with it, not facing those monsters that were kind of in my head. And it stayed with me as a result of that all the way, you know, through my early 20s. And I'm like, why am I why am I still so angry? Why am I still so sad? And it was because I hadn't faced those, those imaginary monsters. And so I hope that when people read this, you know, maybe it inspires them to be, to be brave and, and face their own monsters, the things that are hard, because the truth is those things don't actually go away until you face them. I, I think that's sage advice, and I am excited to see what you do next. But in the meantime, I hope everybody digs into Beasts of Prey by Ayana Gray. She's kind of a big deal. I think you guys want to be on the early end of this. So, Ayana, thank you so much for appearing on It's Lit. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so, so much for having me. It was, it was really fun. there. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Our theme song was penned by yours truly and producer Scott Jacoby. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us out, and we always appreciate your feedback so much. Now, if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can also find me on Twitter at Maisha, that's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A, and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk just a little bit about what we're currently reading. Now, I I have a confession to make, you know, and maybe you already know this because I am the host of a literary podcast. I'm a bit of a nerd. I'm a nerd. <laughs> I mean, I'm a sexy nerd. I'm a fun nerd. I'm a, you know, splashy nerd, but I am a nerd. And so I've been getting into black nerd problems. 
so named for the podcast the same name now i've just started this book um i i haven't really gotten into the problems yet i kind of think it's delightful but i invite you to read it too i think this is going to be um a fun read and we will see if we can get the authors on the show but that's it for this week thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week in the meantime you know what to do keep it lit 